following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, our final portion of this epistle, Galatians 6, beginning at verse 11 and reading to the end at verse 18. Paul is taking up the pen at this point. As you see, he notes that he's writing with large letters, and there are different views about whether he does that because of the possible eye problem he has and that he's referred to earlier in the book. And maybe he just has to do that because he can't see very well. Or it's possible that they didn't have bold type in that day. So he's writing largely because he's taking up the pen and summarizing here the, the sense of the book as a whole. And he might be writing large for emphasis. We're not sure exactly what the answer is. But not that this is any more inspired than the first part. Because here, instead of dictating it, now he is writing it himself. Hear God's word, Galatians 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God." From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. People today are passionate about many things. Our degree of leisure that we have in the West with relatively affluent society and all of these things enables people to focus on lots of things, from video games to gardening, from cars to cooking, from texting to triathlons, none of which are necessarily wrong in their place, but we humans tend to let our priorities get all wrong. In his book on the cross-centered life, C.J. Mahaney asks, what's at the center of your life? What's the main thing? that you are most passionate about? What do you love to think about or talk about? What defines who you are? Your career, a certain relationship, your family, your ministry, some cause, your political affiliation, maybe a hobby, or your appearance, or your house, or your car, or your possessions. The list goes on. 
But here in verse 14, as the apostle summarizes this book, we see him and what he's passionate about is the cross of Jesus Christ. But far be it from me to boast, or we might say to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What a verse. What a declaration. Dr. D.A. Carson writes about this text, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. He's talking about things that may be right and fine in their place or even theological truth, that's fine, but when it displaces the center, the cross of Jesus Christ, then we're in danger or we're not far removed from idolatry. Paul resolved to never boast except in the cross of Christ. In other words, that the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, is to be central in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. It's what is to define us. It's what we're to be ultimately passionate about. It is what our lives are to be centered on. This evening, I want to urge you and to remind you and encourage you to live a cross-centered, Christ-centered life, to be focused on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We find first that living the cross-centered life means that your hope of salvation is only through the cross. Your hope of salvation is only through the cross. What is the heart of your spiritual life? Is it religion or morality, or is it Jesus Christ and His cross? This problem of having a religion focused on religious ceremonies, religious ideas, is a problem that has cropped up again and again in the church. And here in the book of Galatians, we've seen it over and over again in in Paul's very stern and solemn warnings about not returning to Jesus Christ, faith in Christ, plus anything else that you would add to it, circumcision, keeping the ceremonial law, anything like that that was plaguing the church that he was addressing here. These people who taught faith in Christ plus religious law-keeping needed to be corrected. And we see that he's still concerned. He spends verses 12 and 13, again, summarizing his great concern about this. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. In other words, they were exerting pressure on Christians there. They were, um, they were forcing them, he's saying, psychological force, moral force. And they, he says that at the end of this verse, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. There was this sense that uh, the center of Judaism at the time in Jerusalem was very concerned with what was going on with Christianity spreading around the world of that day. And and it would bring persecution to say that the way of salvation didn't depend on whether you were circumcised or not. That's why he 
gets down to that in verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's not a matter of outward conformity to the ceremonial or moral law. And in fact, he notes here that these Judaizers, as they have been called, they even themselves, verse 13, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They wanted to notch their spiritual belts and be able to go back to Jerusalem and say, we turn them back to law-keeping in order to be saved. But he says, and we know what the Sermon on the Mount says, there's a spiritual depth to the law of God. And none of us keep the law. Jesus Christ is the only one who fully kept the law of God. But in contrast, after describing them and what they've been trying to force on the Galatian church, he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not going, Paul is not trying to keep a statistical count of people he converts to Christ so that he can boast about it somehow. No, he's boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. We might say it's the difference between outer conformity or inner change and transformation by the gospel. These Judaizers were taking importance in appearance, in outward things. Have you ever noticed how people, it's so easy to judge and evaluate by appearance. I read an article, we, we flew to Texas the other week, week, and I just read an article about if you want to get noticed on a plane and you want the flight attendants to really take care of you well, they were telling you these five or six things to do. One of them was to dress really well. And you'd get, I didn't follow that because I like to wear my jeans on the plane, but um, we were, you know, we're pretty far back in the line and looking at the business class that gets up to go on the Southwest flights first. And I was thinking, yeah, most of them are dressed very well. Those, I don't know how to really evaluate how expensive suits are, but they looked pretty good. Well, maybe that's how the world works. But Paul's point here is that true inner transformation, real forgiveness from God, a right relationship to God comes only through Jesus Christ. And so we need to be asking, am I boasting in the cross by first and foremost trusting in his cross and resurrection for my salvation alone? That is the initial means of coming to God And that is the way we live every day of the Christian life. It's not by how we feel about things. It's faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. And feelings flow as a result of that. We think, how how can I be passionate about the cross? How can I boast and glory in the cross? You know, it's interesting that we cannot just manufacture passion. If somebody says, I want you to be passionate about ice hockey. If you're not an ice hockey fan, it just doesn't sit very well with you, right? It's like, eh, I've watched some of those games a little bit. I'm just, I don't have it. Maybe there would be a way if you went to game after game after game, you'd get to know the team. But it would be passion that would come out of knowledge of something. And and so it is, the scriptures say that as we believe something, and hold to the truth of God, then feelings follow that. 
So if we are going to be passionate about the cross of Christ, we need to believe the truth of Jesus Christ and to remind ourselves about the cross of Jesus Christ and, and daily to focus on the cross and to sing great hymns about the cross of Jesus Christ and to rejoice in that truth of who Jesus Christ is and passion will follow. And notice, especially here, as we think about this point, that Paul is emphasizing glorying in the cross versus falling back into our own attempts at pleasing God by what we do. Yes, Christians grow in pleasing God. There is a true sense that Scripture speaks about that. As we grow in Christ, it's more and more pleasing to God as His children grow in likeness to Christ. But ultimately, we are pleasing to God through our relationship to Jesus Christ by His righteousness on our behalf, and we must never turn away from that. Our prayer needs to be, Lord, help me to more and more place Jesus Christ and his cross at the center of my life. That's a good prayer to pray. Are you praying along those lines? Help me more and more to turn away from the idols of my life that would, I would tend to get too passionate about and would displace you and your cross. Help me to see those things and by your power to repent of those things and to more and more have a heart that is absorbed with Jesus Christ, that is treasuring Jesus Christ, that is loving Jesus and trusting him and submitting to him. And so we pray with the hymn we just sang, Jesus, keep me near the cross. That's a great thought to bear in our minds. Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection and his salvation and his gospel, you see, are really foreign to the natural mind. They're really really an offense, we would say, to the natural way people think about God and how people think we would relate to God. It goes counter to the way people think. And so, today we see someone wearing a cross, and that doesn't mean that they profess faith in Christ. It's just a nice religious symbol. Anyone can wear a cross because it's a religious symbol and In a sense, its ugliness has gone. The offense of the cross is often not there. But if you start to tell someone the true message of the cross, it may be very offensive to them because the message itself is that we are sinners and hopeless to save ourselves unless we are rescued by Jesus Christ and his cross. And we are under the judgment and the holy wrath of God, except that we are in Jesus Christ. That's not the way the normal person thinks about his or her life. The man on the street, if you ask them, would say, well, I know I'm not perfect, and but, you know, I hope that I'm pretty good, and sometimes I get angry, or sometimes I say things I shouldn't say maybe, or cut corners morally, but I, I you know, I really hope that God understands And I hope that uh, I get into heaven, if there is a heaven, of course. And, you know, there are people, I'm sure, like Hitler and and Stalin and so forth who, you know, probably won't be there, but I'm not like them. And so boasting in the cross means that we embrace the message of the cross, which includes very humbling truth about you and me 
and who we are before God, what God says about our sin and his holiness and what Christ did. And so boasting in the cross, glorying in the cross, means saying yes to Jesus Christ and his cross. I told this story a few years ago, but I came to Christ in my sophomore year college, and I joined the soccer fraternity. I played on the soccer team, and I had joined that at the end of my freshman year. And, but by my junior year and my growth in Christ, I knew that I could not stay with the fraternity because of um, immoral practices that the fraternity carried out really as a whole. And so in my stuttering, weak, very young Christian kind of way, at one of the brotherhood meetings that were always on a Monday evening, I stood up before them and said my little speech about the fact that I had to resign. And I was actually going home to live. I lived in the same town where the school was. So I didn't do a very good job of it. But some of them came up to me afterwards, appreciated what I had said. Some just thought it was wacko. But the ones who came up and talked to me just said, I I just really don't understand why you're making such a big deal out of this. And as I think back on that, I appreciate their kindness and trying to understand something that I probably didn't explain very well. But also, the offense of the cross was there. As I look back, that you would say that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ and that you really have to become, in a sense, fanatical. You have to lay down everything and follow Christ. It intrudes into every area of your life. Most of those young men would have thought, oh, they're not that bad. They're doing all the normal things that young men do at schools like that. But the offense of the cross was very much there. And if you've come to Christ, then you've already identified with the offense of the cross. And now that cross is something that makes perfect sense to you. Maybe you still have to work out in your life a lot of how the cost it is Involves, And we'll see more about that. But if you've come to Christ, then the cross of Jesus Christ is your joy. Maybe not at that level of passion all the time, but fundamentally in the center of your being, the cross of Jesus Christ is your delight. You know it's true that you are a sinner and that you are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But the cross of Christ is beautiful and precious because Jesus bore your sins to bring you to God and you know him, and you love him. And there's a real sense in which you want to thank him every day for what he's done. Living the cross-centered life is how we begin the Christian life. And if you haven't come to Christ, then you need to start praying, Lord, please open my eyes to understand what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. But secondly, living the cross-centered life means that the way you fight to become holy is through the power of the cross. We aren't going to spend a lot of time on this point, but Galatians has talked about this again and again, that the strength, the power to become holy practically is through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and his life dwelling in us by the Spirit. It's not by our own efforts in and of ourselves. And I would make a distinction, as many do, between 
positional holiness, who we are in Christ with the righteousness of Christ, and practical holiness, which means our daily sanctification, our daily growth in becoming like Christ. And it's only through the power of the cross of Christ in our lives that we begin to truly overcome sin and become more like Christ. And we never do that perfectly and completely in this life, but we are growing by God's grace. Notice at the end of verse 14, when Paul talks about boasting in the cross, he further describes it in this way, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What a statement, isn't it? He's saying his whole relationship to the world has been fundamentally changed. He's been crucified to the world by the cross. The world has been crucified to him. This radical change has taken place with his relationship to the world, and we would say to sin as well. He's been crucified with Christ. It's interesting that it's not very different from chapter 5, verse 24. It's probably on the same page with with this other verse in chapter 6. 5.24 says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's talking about something a little bit different there, but the same main theme that God has done something radical in our lives through the cross of Christ. And now we have a whole whole new ability to begin to work that out in practice. It was in great contrast to the false teachers who were concerned about their image, who don't want to be persecuted who were giving into the fear of man, who apparently, you know, we would say they probably had great marketing techniques for how they were getting across their ideas. But for Paul, it's the opposite. The cross had made this radical change in his life that now he's dead to the world, you might say, and the world is dead to him. And so he can say in verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew. What counts? Are you a new creation in Christ, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew? That's the difference. It's a new creation. It's a whole new way of living, a whole new way, we would say, of fighting the battle for holiness and becoming like Christ. It reminds me of a fantasy series we used to read our kids from the Lloyd Alexander books. The first one was The Black Cauldron. Maybe some of you young people have read that series. Our children love to read that. And it was about these children in the book learning life lessons from hard times. And they were caught up in this big battle between evil and good of their world. And there were these evil beings called cauldron born who no one could kill them in the battles that took place. But as the book unfolds, you see the only way to stop these beings is for a living human being to willingly get into the black cauldron that created them. It's a pretty dark part of the book. And at one point near the end of the book, I'm going to ruin it for you if you haven't read the book, there's a boy who gets into that, and, and it destroys their power. And it reminds me of any effort to fight sin in our own lives that hasn't been based on the cross It's the cross that fundamentally gives us the ability to put to death sin practically because there's been this fundamental change in our relationship to the world. We've been crucified to the world. Reminds me of Colossians chapter 2 where Paul is dealing with a similar problem in the 
Colossian church. And Colossians 2.20, he says, If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's talking to, about, again, false teaching that emphasized external regulations. Verse 22, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. In other words, they, they seem to make sense. It's like the latest uh, pop psychology craze that's going on about how to change your life. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the, the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's like what medieval monastic monks did in order to repent in terms of ascetic behavior. And Paul says, it doesn't have any value in truly getting to the heart of our sin and our practical growth in holiness And again, in Colossians, he points them to Christ and his cross as the basis for our lives. We are to fight the fight of holiness by the power of the cross and boast in the cross in that sense. And then finally, we see that living the cross-centered life means that we are willing to suffer as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ and his cross. We are willing to suffer for the cross, boasting in the cross Glorying in the cross means that we are willing to count the cost of going the way of the cross. Notice that Paul, near the end, the very end of this epistle, says in verse 17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my my body the marks of Jesus. Commentators largely agree that what he is talking about here is that the suffering that he's experienced in his missionary journeys up to this point. And there's a debate as to when Galatians was exactly written, but he's already started to endure sufferings for Christ, even in his first missionary trip. And those scars, whatever they were exactly, those are the marks that show his identity with Christ, his union with Christ. He bears on his body these marks. Suffering may involve physical persecution like it did for Paul. It will certainly involve being misunderstood at times, probably laughed at. And isn't Jesus our preeminent example here when it comes to going the way of the cross? Hebrews 2 has that beautiful, Hebrews 12 has that text that says, that for the joy set before him, Jesus Christ despised the cross. In other words, he scorned the cross. He, was, he did not think it too hard to go the way of the cross. For the joy, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It says we are to look to Jesus, the, the author and finisher, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Going back to the airplane ride, you know the, the 
pilot gets on the intercom at the beginning and gives you a little announcement, you know, to tell you what we're doing and to tell you to be safe. And he usually spices it up with a few jokes. And at the end, when you're about to land, he does that again. But, you know, maybe it's because taking off and landing are the most dangerous times. But really, when you're on that plane, you know that, in a sense, your lives are in that pilot's hands from takeoff to landing, And Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He begins our faith, he completes our faith, and he carries us, he flies the plane, so to speak, the whole way in between. And he's the preeminent example for us of what it means to glory in the cross in the sense of embracing suffering for the cross as we follow in his footsteps, trusting in him and looking beyond the cross For the joy beyond the cross, Christians are called to persevere in trusting Jesus and obeying Jesus, whatever the cost. And that there are times when that is not easy. Some of you young folks, with your friends and with the decisions that you face, certainly that doesn't end in middle life. It doesn't get easier in later life. No matter how old you get, there's always a cross to bear in following Jesus Christ. We don't lay down that cross until the grave. In fact, Jesus calls us to follow him in the way of the cross, and in the gospel, that cross-bearing command is recorded six times. In four gospels, it's recorded a total of six times to show the importance of it. And the way of the cross is hard, it's offensive, it's opposite to the natural way of the world And it's opposite to our own remaining sinful inclinations that life would be easy and smooth. And so boasting in the cross, glorying in the cross, means that we embrace the suffering that may come our way. Maybe it's being mocked to some degree. Maybe it's being misunderstood by people you count as friends. Even the idea of daily turning away from sin that tempts you for Jesus' sake, is real suffering in the way of the cross. Maybe it's not suffering that somebody else brings on you, but in other words, to make that choice at that moment, to turn away from the pathway of sin out of regard and love for Jesus Christ as you trust in Him, there's an element of suffering in that. There's an element of endurance to go God's way. In our missionaries, we just had the missionary conference, and it's always interesting to me to hear what missionaries say about their lives. And of course, in many ways, their lives are just like our lives, but they're living it out in a different context, often in a context that isn't even as Christianized, we might say, as Lancaster is. And I remember both J.G. Zollner and others as well, for example, missionaries describing East Berlin, talking about how When you talk to young people in those contexts in both Canada and Germany, the idea of traditional marriage and the idea of waiting to live together until you're married, those ideas were just scoffed at as being naive, as being antiquated. Why would you do that? It would come across as strange and weird And so if a young person lives in that kind of context, part of the suffering for the cross, part of enduring the cross, 
is to live a life that may seem to the rest of the world that he or she is around as very odd. It's like this professor who was a member of our New Jersey church plant who was a professor at a university in the New Jersey area, and one day, kind of by accident, he stumbled into a discussion with colleagues in the classics department where he taught, and somehow they asked him, well, do you tithe at your church? He didn't mean to have to answer this, and he said, well, yes, I do tithe. And he said to me later on that you would have thought he was wearing a blue tuxedo with purple feathers and walking around squawking like a chicken by saying yes to that. They just thought it was crazy. They just thought it was something out of the dim past. The offense of the cross, you see, stands at every step in the Christian life of trusting Jesus Christ for your life, your dependence on him, your provision, your guidance of obedience to him throughout your life, saying no to the old sinful inclinations, that's the pathway of the cross. And so boasting in the cross stands at the entrance to the Christian life, it stands as the way to grow in holiness, and it stands as the archway, we might say, over the pathway to suffering that each and every one of us is called to as we follow the way of the cross. And let us not forget that that way is a way of ultimate joy. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. The Apostle Paul, as he concludes this epistle, does not do it with a a sadness. He does it with a sound rejoicing, that he's boasting and glorying in the cross. He's not ashamed of that. He's not saddened by that. He doesn't think there's something wrong about that. He's standing resolutely resisting false doctrine that would raise its ugly head, but standing in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was content to await the joy beyond the cross in reunion with the Father, with the joy of having all things put under his feet, and with the joy of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. We know that's the joy beyond the cross for Christ, and we share in that joy And I would ask you, are you living in the power of the cross of Christ, boasting in the cross, rejoicing in the cross, and even beyond the offense and the suffering of the cross, experiencing at least in part now the joy that the cross of Jesus Christ brings? Let us pray. Father, thank you that the cross is ultimately a way of joy that it is a way of sacrifice, but ultimately a way of receiving such benefits from you, that we would know the true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Thank you that Jesus came and went the way of the cross for us, that we might live in him. We pray in his name. Amen.